Welcome to the Road Home Podcast with Ethan Nickturn. Join Ethan as he and his guests explore the Buddhist path as it relates to art, culture, activism, politics, Western psychology, and more. If you'd like to support Ethan's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Ethan. So hi, everyone. This is Ethan Nickturn for the Road Home Podcast. Uh, again, going to just be sharing some thoughts uh, and ideas coming from, you know, my own perspective, but also my interpretation in a 21st century context of, of how I practice and work with the Buddhist teachings. We have a few really good uh, conversations coming up on future uh, episodes of the podcast, so Please uh, subscribe uh, if you want to hear those conversations. I'm going to be having in future episodes uh, my friend, psychotherapist Heather Coleman, talking about breaking up when relationships don't work out, uh, something a lot of people are experiencing right now. I'm going to be talking with uh, my friend Maude Newton, who just wrote a book about reckoning with her um, ancestry, including her ancestry uh, that she found out were slaveholders in the South, in the United States, and also going to have great Zen teacher, uh, Zendru Earthland Manuel, talking about her latest book and work um, with uh, shamanism and the Buddhist and Zen teachings. So, Today, though, uh, when you're hearing this, uh, and maybe at any time that you would hear this, even if it's not when it's released, we're in a time of great conflict in the world, great fear. Uh, When I'm recording this, things are kind of changing by the day, and I find myself checking back in with the Twitter feed to get a real sense of what's happening on the ground, but... um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is uh, devastating and painful, um, and also at this point, not clearly not going the way uh, Mr. Vladimir Putin wanted it to go so far. Uh, and there's a lot of attention around that, and we're also just existing in this time where people are in a state of conflict with each other uh, on a collective level and on an interpersonal level. Um, We're existing in a time where people have very different and sometimes very confused streams of information about what's going on in the world. We're in a time where you can choose if you want to really kind of follow some kind of thoughtful, careful perception of what's going on in the world to the best of your ability, Uh, or uh, you can uh, sort of do your own research and we can all have this bias to different degrees. It's not a symmetry of biases, as I'll talk about, where um, we sort of 
perceive what we always wanted to perceive about the world and make choices based on our own sense of uh, our individual individual fears and biases uh, and choosing information from that perspective. And it's creating a lot of conflict. I know in the Trump era, uh, in the COVID era, uh, in this highly politicized era, I'm hearing so many stories from practitioners about being in relationship with friends, being in relationship with family members, being in relationship with partners, where there's just radically different, not just views on morality or views on uh, choices, but radically different views on just the facts of reality, um, the facts of life, so to speak, in, in the year 21, sorry, 2022. Uh, I don't know what the year 2122 is going to be like. I desperately hope uh, humans are still here. So the reason this is all important is I think we have to talk as mindful people, as spiritual people, perhaps as Buddhist people or Buddhist people, as I like to say, or people just with an interest in contemplative studies or understanding Buddhist practice and thought and the Buddhist worldview. We have to talk about how to be in conflict and also our conflict avoidance. And I think this is an interesting point because I, I my personal editorial, uh, which what else is a podcast but one's personal editorial on the universe, is that there is often an uh, overemphasis um, in modern uh, Buddhist and mindful and wellness and yogi teachings on avoiding overt conflict being in a state of neutrality, being in a state of objectivity, being in a state of passivity, um, being in a state of uh, acceptance no matter what. And I think this sort of confusion really leads to a kind of harmful conflict aversion uh, and a, a sort of false neutrality. I noticed this in a lot of dialogues about what's going on in the world uh, that a lot of people perceive that the Buddhist way, whatever that is, is to say everybody has an opinion, everybody has their side, everybody has a subjective experience, and all subjectivities are equally delusional or samsaric or caught up in a kind of ego fixation. And we also exist in a kind of media narrative that I've noticed where there is a desire, and I think this is because journalism has this, from a Buddhist perspective, what I would call a false view of maintaining objectivity. And what I would like to point out is that objectivity and neutrality are not actually Buddhist teachings. We are subjective creatures. So that's, that's the first premise of what I want to talk about in terms of how we looked at our conflict avoidance and how we um, maybe 
handle conflict, be in a state of tension or conflict with other people uh, in a way that is not aggressive, is not violent, is not causing harm or suffering. There also seems to be this stream in the wellness yogi Buddhist world of sort of idealizing people. I've noticed this following a few of the uh, commentaries that Russell Brand has given recently, and and he seems a smart guy. Uh, I don't have any problem with that, and I don't really know his his intentionality with anything that he's doing, but there there does seem to be a kind of idealizing of this position of a kind of detached neutrality on the events of the world. For example, vaccines, or for example, um, you know, what's going on in Ukraine right now, and a desire to point out that all of these other subjective factions are kind of just symmetrical in their confusion, right? So there's a kind of whataboutism or a both-siderism that is a longing to hover above the entire state of conflict. And in that hovering above, there's this feeling of like, that is the true awakening. That is the true non-confused state. And I think what a lot of modern thinkers, especially those who are pointing out the limitations of uh, being like like Russell or I am a, a straight white male who's not naming our social location, is that the hovering aboveness of any state of conflict uh, is its own location, right? It actually is its own. It's not neutrality. It's its own subjectivity, right? It's its own location, And it can be quite a comfortable location. It can particularly be quite a comfortable spiritual location, right? That's the thing is is neutrality. And this is what I think we have to get at for us uh, yogis and, and dharma practitioners. We have to start to understand that neutrality and the philosophy that kind of uh, bolsters our idealizing of neutrality um, is comfortable. It's more comfortable than the tension of being in a state of conflict, right? It's, it's more comfortable than saying, actually, I'm going to take a side here and you can disagree with me, but I'm going to take a side based on what I'm seeing and what I'm studying and what feels also like it. I think this is the Buddhist perspective of how we take a side. Uh, what feels like the side that actually is reducing dukkha or confusion or suffering the most, right? That's less comfortable. And I think this is the first thing we have to really acknowledge as Dharma practitioners is actually making a choice to be in a state of conflict and name a state of conflict is uh, tense. It's frictive. It's, it doesn't feel good, you know? It doesn't particularly feel good to me uh, when I meet a friend, for example, who has some holistic medical explanation uh, for why they're not getting vaccinated or why they didn't get vaccinated to, to, 
to feel that and be like, that doesn't help other people. That's confused, you know, to actually feel that in my bones. Like you're, you're not actually being a good teammate with your other humans right now. It doesn't feel good to think that about another human. It feels much more comfortable, especially if you have the privilege to remove yourself into this sort of spiritual space of objectivity. It feels much more comfortable to be like, well, some people are getting vaccinated. Some people aren't getting vaccinated. There's different perspectives on the matter, right? And we all have our subjective biases, our uh, karmic veils, etc. And so... Who's to say? Who's to say that one perspective is more awake than the other or reduces suffering more than the other? Who can say? Right? That's, that's actually uh, uh, what I would say is it's a strategy for dealing with the discomfort of being in states of conflict. What I would also say is it's a passive-aggressive strategy. It's a way of suppressing the internalized pain of being like, sometimes I'm in a state of disagreement, you know, and sometimes I think certain people are radically confused, right? Sometimes I think there are uh, uh, decisions to be made in the world. There is, uh, does Buddhism believe in right and wrong? No, but we do believe in skillful and unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome. We believe in a view that uh, is coming from a kind of self-oriented or selfishly oriented individualism versus a view that's coming from uh, an understanding of interdependence and the influence of our actions upon rippling outward on ourselves and more than just ourselves, right? So we do actually believe in things. And this is why I've really, you know... um, made a choice as somebody who practices and teaches Buddhism to not take uh, the approach of um, making vague general statements about wholesome and unwholesome conduct or choices and letting everybody else figure out in their own life what choices to make from that. I've, I've made a choice to say that 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 feels insufficient as a practitioner and teacher when discussing conduct and ethics and choices. And instead, a better way to do it is to actually be transparent about how I apply my practice and Buddhist principles and mindfulness principles to different issues going on in the world and invite disagreement, right? Invite, invite debate on that. But if we never say, Hey, you know, here's this thing, right? Guess what? Like, we actually don't want Vladimir Putin to be in charge of something. Or guess what? It's weird that all of our attention goes to the invasion of a white European country, but very little goes to the invasion of a Middle Eastern country, sovereign nation, or an African country, etc., Um, that's weird, right? And that's a Buddhist position to say, okay, what is our blind spot there and why? And then if somebody says, well, you missed the facts or you missed this fact or you're partially right, then we actually have a conversation and everybody participates in a deepening of the understanding 
of Buddhist practice. Now, is Buddhist practice just about ethics? Of course not. Of course not. Um, there's a lot of contemplative uh, training in working with our mind in meditation. Uh, and you have those resources, you know, to look at. Uh, I think people who just follow me on my podcast or, or um, you know, just follow me on Twitter or something like that think that I'm just like interested in politics and social issues. I actually meditate every day. I try to work with my mind, the personal space of my being, and I teach those things, right? But this view of actually let's get in there. Let's talk about current events. Let's talk about the choices we're making, how we're consuming, how we're engaging or disengaging politically. You know, we have to talk about those things. Ethics are a huge part of the Buddhist path and I do have to say, I love so many of my Buddhist teachers uh, and and colleagues, but I think to a certain degree we, and I'm including myself in this, have really failed uh, when we're afraid until it becomes really necessary, right? We're afraid to talk about specific issues and where we come down on them, Um, and that almost feeds into um, this space of bolstering other people's conflict aversion when it comes to the Buddhist teachings, right? And if Buddhism is going to operate in democracy, we, you know, the, the, the practice of citizenship in a democracy is to be talking about issues all the time. That's actually what citizens of a democracy have to do. It comes from the earliest understanding of democracy. We're engaging, we're debating, we're saying, I believe this, you believe that, etc. And when you're engaging, you're in a state of conflict. So it would make sense if even if somebody's my so-called Dharma student to say, how do you feel about this? Well, I feel this way, you know, how do you feel about ethics, right? And this could apply to personal ethics, like, do you eat meat or not? Uh, what does right speech mean for you, etc. could apply to interpersonal ethics, and it can apply to social ethics and political practices, cultural practices. Um, so I really, I really urge people who teach meditation, who teach yoga, who teach wellness, to be a little bit more active about bringing up issues that you care about. And if a student or another teacher is in conflict with you about that, invite that, invite that. Um, be transparent, right? D- don't, I, I really do wish, I'm sorry, I'm going to get off this particular soapbox in a minute. I, I really do wish that Buddhist teachers kind of um, writing and social media presence was a little less vague on matters of active compassion a little more directed to the um, events of the day and what actions they're taking socially and politically. And some people do a great job of this. Some people do a really great job of this. I'm I'm thinking uh, of uh, a wide variety of, of teachers do a really great job of it. But overall, there is this space of mindfulness as just this personal decontextualized from ethics practice Um, which I think is coming from a a fear of conflict, to be honest, right? And this conflict can take 
all all kinds of shapes. What if somebody um, doesn't buy my book, right? What if somebody unsubscribes from my list? You know, you know, it, there's a there's a fear, or there's a real genuine fear too of like, what if I turn somebody off from studying these teachings? I mean. I don't think we're going to turn somebody off. This is the other tactic of conflict aversion that I've noticed is that when somebody who's not conflict averse names a state of tension, right? Just says, here's a thing that's happening in the world. Here's, and here's what I believe about it. And just shares without attacking anyone, their views. One of the tactics of the falsely neutral is to say that that person is politicizing something. In other words, if I'm talking about, let's say, what I believe about the relationship between Vladimir Putin and the American Republican Party and how that matters from a Buddhist perspective, right? There might be a Republican Buddhist. There are Republican Buddhists. Um, and uh, they might say, oh, you're politicizing this, right? Just because I'm talking, I mean, it's very obvious that there's an incredibly strong relationship between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump's Republican Party in the United States. It's actually demonstrably uh, Russia's strongest ally in the world. Um, uh, so I'm just naming that. And somebody says, you're politicizing it, right? In other words, there's, there's a tactic of the conflict averse, a tactic of the parts of ourselves that's comfortable to say the person who names the tension is the one who created the tension. And that also applies, it's really interesting how that applies in our personal situations and also applies in our interpersonal conflict that's not particularly political or social, at least not overtly so, right? You named this tension, right? We all have this experience probably when we're brave enough to come out of a state of our conflict aversion, let's say at a family dinner, Thanksgiving, or something like that. You name a tension in the family and the family says, why are you creating tension? Can't we just get along, right? Can't we just get along? But you didn't, the person who names the, the situation didn't create it. that. So I just really want to, those of us who are a little, um, fearful about being more lovingly in conflict and in a state of confrontation to say, this is one of the number one tactics, right? To say that the person who is naming the tension created the tension. Uh, it's really problematic from a mindfulness standpoint because the basic view of mindfulness is we have to name everything if we want to be present. We name what's happening, right? Pleasure. Body sensation, anger, right? tension, right? That's what mindfulness practice is. It's not transcending what's happening. It's naming the stream of moments. So in an interpersonal or a social or political space, <clears throat> the mindfulness practice, in my humble opinion, is to name what's going on, right? To name uh, what's happening, right? And then you get called divisive for naming it. And that is a number one tactic of the conflict averse to remain comfortable. Okay, so <clears throat> now let's assume that there's a situation 
let's say, with a friend or a family member or a larger political situation that we're willing to step into, which, again, that third one, to be a citizen of democracy requires that we are constantly doing that, actually. Um, It's actually democracy is synonymous with the engagement in loving conflict. But let's assume that we're able, and, you know, a lot of the students that I work with, we talk through how to actually step into a space of conflict with somebody from from a loving and uh, perspective and a standpoint of compassion and awakening. Uh, what are some of the principles of actually engaging a state of loving conflict? Well, we have the principles of, of right speech, of course, right? Uh, and there's various principles in Buddhist thought of right speech. The first one has to do with mindful listening, right? So we don't just shut someone out. Um, I do, by the way, really just to study, again, the tactics and strategies. I go to the Fox News website once a day. It's fascinating how the narratives work there uh, and the larger structures of narrative and you know, it's it's basically Fox News is an entire apparatus built to just capture the white amygdala and kind of keep it in a netting um, and recapture it. Um, it's very villain-driven. Uh, the, the villains are almost always women uh, in the Democratic Party and usually women of color, you'll note, um, if you go there. And then just a lot of fear-based um, reporting. Uh, so it's a it's a real platform of selling fear. But let's let's assume that you're actually in a state of conflict, and and you you know decide to talk to somebody and say this is not okay. This is where I stand. This is a problem, right? I disagree, and here's why I disagree. So first, we listen. I do think that that's a Buddhist perspective, and this is a this is a practice, because there is something when there's a tension, we want to really talk, we want to express what's wrong, right? We want to um, talk about the suffering, talk about the injustice, and there's a space in Buddhist practice of right speech where we listen. Now, here's the thing about listening and right speech. This is tricky in the modern world. Um, The first thing I always say about why right speech is complicated is I always like to remind people that the Buddha taught right speech within the Sangha. It was a code of conduct and practices for expressing and listening that he taught to his monastic community, which means that everybody who was hearing this teaching was basically agreeing to the same attempt at practice. Everybody was agreeing to the principles of deep listening, what we could call it now, right speech. So, and it was hard enough with everybody agreeing, okay, we're going to try to practice this in the Sangha, in the community. It's not the case that everybody at your family gathering is familiar with any of the principles of mindful or right speech or wants to be familiar It's certainly not the case that bots and trolls on Twitter have agreed to uh, the principles of attempting to practice right speech. So it's very hard. 
it's very hard, right? But actually receiving what is somebody's pain, what is somebody's perspective, right? I think that's an important step. It's also an important step, I think, because we can find out pretty quickly if we trust ourselves whether or not somebody is coming in good faith or whether they're being tactical from a self-defensive standpoint in how they are um, trying to engage us, right? And one of the tactics, again, is for the conflict-averse person or the comfortable person to claim that we are actually creating the tension when we name the tension. So is this a good faith conversation? Is there space here to keep expressing, to keep listening? I'll talk about what happens if we determine there isn't space. But four classic Buddhist principles of right speech are once we determine that we do want to express ourselves, the idea is to say what is true to the best of our ability. And we might not always know in certain situations what is completely true, but to say what we believe to be true with the best faith and trust in the overall situation, uh, with a willingness to receive new information about what else might be true. The second principle is, is this kind or is this overly harsh? So I think I have a playful sense of humor, sometimes sarcastic or ironic, but I try to the best of my ability to make sure that there's actually space for that to feel that doesn't come across too harshly, right? And it might, when somebody mistrusts me, it might not be the time for humor. Our ability to use humor is usually based on the establishment of good faith and trust. So kindness, not saying what is too harsh, right? So there's a, there's a softness or a gentleness along with the straightforwardness in the Buddhist practice of right speech in a, in a space of conflict. Um, the third is to avoid um, divisive speech, speech that is intentionally set to try to turn people against each other, right? Which, you know, we, we live in a world where there's very powerful interests that a lot of these misinformation campaigns are based on uh, the, the tool of divisiveness. It's the actual strategy, right? But we are trying to practice not engaging in setting people against each other. And the fourth principle is to avoid uh, idle chatter or useless speech, speech that doesn't really accomplish anything other than the filling of space, the creation of entertainment, and the avoiding of um, the alone quality of, uh, and the, the boring quality of silence. But it's really those first two that I think are important. And I think it's tricky because we also exist in an environment where it kind of feels cool. You know, I noticed this in social media just to dunk on people, right? Just to like subtweet somebody or something like that and uh, um, kind of annihilate them or uh, call them a garbage person or you're trash. And one thing I try to do is always speak respectfully to people. Uh, and, uh, even if I think they're being very tactical in their confusion and manipulative, and I always try to speak to the action or the view rather than defining the person, right? So I'd, I'd rather say that's a confused argument rather than you're an idiot, 
I try to completely stay away from you're an idiot. It's just so unhelpful, you know. Uh, I think it's really unhelpful in um, uh, for those of us who are engaged politically to call conservative people stupid. They're not stupid. They're not stupid at all. First of all, they keep holding on to power as a minority of most of the countries they operate in. So that's that's pretty smart. I don't think it's, you know, wholesome or helpful, but um, people who disagree with me are usually quite smart, you know, and I have to actually respect and acknowledge that um, and try to actually engage in a, a way that actually acknowledges their basic goodness, no matter how strong the state of conflict is. So what, this is the last point I want to kind of make, what happens if we come to the conclusion that the state of conflict is so big that we can't deal with the person? We can't be in active relationship with them. And I think this is interesting. I've, I've talked to a bunch of friends and students recently uh, about feeling torn apart, you know, uh, from uh, people they care about uh, because of um, just disagreements that felt like they were causing too much harm or that there was no step forward for uh no, no way to um, proceed in an active relationship. And one of the things I've noticed, especially when it comes to things related to the, the, the vaccine issue, because that's been a conversation I've had a lot recently with students, uh, especially just because um, the sort of vaccine hesitant and the anti-vax uh, perspectives are so... Uh, oddly common within wellness and spiritual spaces um, is that again, this is when we decide I can't be in active relationship with somebody. That is the point where the kind of uh, the tactical um, approach comes back at us. And the person says something like, why can't we just disagree on this and still be friends? Why, why, why do you, aren't you a Buddhist? Why do you have to make such a big deal of this? You, you believe one thing, I believe another. Why can't you have compassion for me? And so there's, there's, a, there's a, an attempt to kind of bring us back to this view that neutrality, acceptance, conflict, avoidance uh, are the highest principles rather than what actually are, from a Buddhist perspective, the highest principles, which is uh, reducing dukkha, confusion, harm, and suffering wherever we can. That's actually the highest principle in Buddhism. Um, sorry, but neutrality is not the highest principle in Buddhism. It's not even a principle in Buddhism. Right? So this argument might come back at us like, can't you come to Thanksgiving anyway? You know, the family loves you, et cetera. And then we have to decide, like, uh, there, there's a moment where to be the conflict-facing person, you have this feeling of, pardon my French, but am I the asshole here? And I get a fair amount of feedback on social media. And sometimes in my personal life, when there's been conflict, it's like with friends or, you know, in relationships, et cetera, or just people I work with. It's like, I thought you were a Buddhist. 
Like, why do you have to say no to me? I thought you were a Buddhist. And that's tactical. You know, it's it's an actual wrong speech because the person's attacking us as a certain kind of person who's just supposed to put up with everything. But this creates a lot of pain. This creates tremendous pain when we come to the conclusion, I don't think I can go home for Thanksgiving. Or I don't think I'm going to be friends with this person for a while. Their confusion or their manipulative behaviors or what they believe about the world, whatever level it's happening on, it's just too much. It's just it just it just doesn't feel right in my being to um, participate. And that, this is where I think our greatest activism actually happens: is really choosing what we are participating in and what we're not participating in. And when you look at real nonviolent movements, they all have a basis of shifting participation mindfully. I'm not going to participate in this anymore. I'm going to participate in that. And sometimes we have to choose for the time being to not participate in relationships. We do. It sucks. Because at the same time, I sit down on my cushion and I say compassion for all beings. You know what? And I want to tell you folks something. Uh, I don't have a hard time when I sit down. I don't do it often because there's people who deserve my attention more. But you ask me to do loving kindness or compassion meditation for Donald Trump, it's not that hard. You know, it's not that hard. I see him as a little boy, a confused little boy, just trying to get his aggressive and narcissistic father's attention. I see him in future lifetimes, maybe having redeemable qualities. Maybe in some future lifetime, uh, he's a decent being with you know, 16 legs on another planet. And he becomes a a great peace activist on that planet. I can see that pretty simply and clearly. But to say this isn't going to happen anytime soon, it's the same as when we decide that a relationship has to break up. Right? This this isn't going to happen. This is too painful. This is too confused. This is not helping me generate wholesome qualities. This is not helping me help the world. Uh, it sucks because we do want to accept everybody and we do want to generate compassion. That's why people come to a path like Buddhism. It's like, oh, there's another way to be in the world. We actually don't have to be so self-centered and self-involved. We can still take care of ourselves. We can still appreciate ourselves greatly. But I can actually care about a much larger interdependent situation. But the pain of that, the the pain of the conflict facing, the pain of the discomfort of existing in a state of tension with sentient beings we actually care about is sometimes you say, this is not the time for an active relationship. You know, this is not the time for an active relationship. I'm not going to be friends with that person this life. We're not going to make further progress understanding each other in this political dialogue. And that's okay. That's okay. We have to tend to the heartbreak of that. So what I would suggest is if you decide, you know what, I can't be an active relationship 
with this person. One, that you prepare yourself for some sort of energetic backlash where they say, well, you're not being compassionate. I thought you were this kind of person. I thought you were practicing these things. And you prepare yourself for a kind of egoic response where some version of accepting everybody is placed above um, truth and uh, the reduction of suffering. And you're, uh, somebody's angry at you for actually saying this tension is insurmountable right now. And the other thing I'd suggest is if you decide that you have to leave a relationship, keep that person in your practice. If you have a practice like a, a metta meditation or tonglen meditation or visualization practice that has compassion as its core element, include that person, include them, and realize the difference between active relationship and the vast truth of interdependence. The vast truth of interdependence is we are, from a Buddhist perspective, is we're all related across lifetimes. You know, all sentient beings have been my mother is one Tibetan contemplation. Donald Trump has been my mother. That can be taken in, in many different ways. And it's a very bold and perhaps triggering statement. So I'm connected with Donald Trump across many lifetimes. And I accept that. That doesn't mean I want him to have any power right now. I am willing to, um, because my daughter's future is on the line, I am willing to keep confronting the conflict of that sort of empowerment in the world with love, but with whatever force my not-so-brave being is able to muster. So we're all connected. And we will be connected. And the person, whether it's an ex, whether it's um, a coworker, whether it's a member of your family, um, you're in vast connection with them. And often space opens up sooner than we think to address the conflict. Things shift. Sometimes it's a few months. Sometimes it's a few years. Sometimes it's a few lifetimes. But there will be a future phase of active relationship. That's really what I believe. And at that point, confronting the conflict will have been more useful to the reduction of suffering than avoiding the conflict. I genuinely believe that. Conflict avoidance is our greatest spiritual obstacle right now. And spiritual teachings that frame neutrality or objectivity um, or conflict avoidance as ideals instead of things like listening, naming, compassion. Those are real ideal, ideals to my mind. Conflict avoidance is confusion. Conflict avoidance, avoidance is samsara. And it takes a lot of bravery. And sometimes we do just want to say, not today. Right, So you can make that choice. Just This is not going to be the family holiday where I cause a ruckus. That's okay. But at a certain point, we have to confront things. Right? And I think this is what's happening politically right now. We have to confront this. We have to confront white supremacy, patriarchy, uh, corporate greed. 
right? We have to confront all of these systems before it's too late for our society, before our entire society becomes an autocracy, before the planet dies. We don't have a choice, right? This is this is like the second to last family Thanksgiving, in a sense. Uh, and so eventually we have to confront. So if you feel like today's not the day I confront my difficult relationship, that's fine. But please, if you make that choice, set an intention or make an aspiration to lovingly try to confront it at some point in the near future. Because otherwise, the karmic patterns of avoidance replicate themselves, the system prevails, and this false sense of neutrality um, just goes on and on and creates further suffering. So anyway, I'm getting off the soapbox now. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, getting back into some conversations uh, with great guests. Again, going forward, mixing up these solo episodes, uh, mini Dharma talks slash Ethan on his soapbox to anybody who has nothing better to do than listen. Uh, but looking forward to some great conversations with some really smart and interesting mindfulness practitioners uh, and uh, really grateful to be here now. Uh, again, if you do know what I want to, uh, what I think about Buddhism overall, uh, please do check out *The Road Home*. It's uh, it's the best book I've written. Uh, although, if you're Princess Bride fans, you can you can check out *The Dharma of the Princess Bride* too. Or if you're just postmodern pop culture uh, fans, uh, EthanNickTurn.com is how you find me. Uh, you can get on the email list there, or you can unsubscribe. That's okay. I'm not afraid of being in conflict with you. And we all make our choices about what to participate in and what not to participate in. Uh, but really hoping you engage to make the world a more just and compassionate place in whatever way is meaningful to you. So for the Road Home Podcast, this is Ethan Nickturn. Uh, see you next time. 